one. Hey everyone, welcome to today's live stream. Welcome to the channel. My name is Zach and I'm going to be your host today. Uh, we go live every week at Tuesday noon central. So make sure to subscribe and ring the bell so you get notified every time we go live. Uh, today we're going to be talking about blockchain and supply chain 4.0. Um, if you're unfamiliar with that topic, we did do a video the other week on uh, actually Walker Reynolds did a keynote on supply chain 4.0 um, at a national distributor conference. So that was actually pretty interesting. If you haven't watched that, I'll put a link in the description and card in the corner. Um, but we're going to get started here in five minutes. We got uh, we got basically an agenda for you guys today. So uh, we're going to be uh, reviewing what blockchain actually is, like understanding it. Um, I'm going to be sharing a video uh, that it's been the best video that I've ever found on explaining how blockchain actually works. That's going to be about 20 minutes. And then we've got a article from Harvard, Harvard Business Review. And uh, I'm going to read that article to you guys through and through. That's going to take another 20 minutes. And then at the end, uh, we're going to go over questions. This is going to be really important today, guys. Um, the information contained in this video will make someone a millionaire, right? One of you guys out there, I mean, you're probably are. We already probably have a few crypto millionaires in, in the chat. Uh, let us know uh, in the poll whether or not you already own cryptocurrency. Um, but the information contained in this video is going to transform supply chain, leveraging blockchain for industry 4.0. And one of you guys or girls in the audience, one of the 4.0 community members will create an app or a startup that's going to be very, very fruitful. So that's the goal today. Uh, it may not be something you apply today, but it's going to be something that's going to really take hold within the next year to two years. So um, if you are in our mentorship program or if you are in our mastermind program, this is going to be part of the required curriculum. We're going to make sure that everyone in our mentorship program goes through this training. So that way we're all operating on like um, a similar understanding of blockchain and supply chain. So everyone, welcome. Hey, adversity and success. Hey, Dan. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, Devin. Hey, Marouche. Um, in two minutes, we're going to go ahead and get started, but... Let me take a quick breath in. Exhale. Thank you, HiveMQ, for sponsoring. Um, everyone give a shout out to HiveMQ and their MQTT broker. Um, without, without the support of our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to do this every week. So uh, we create a lot of content free for the community. You guys had an amazing response to last week's video, um, four ways to monetize or four ways to make money with Industry 4.0. This week, we're, we're actually working on four ways that a manufacturer can can monetize four different like use cases of IIoT and Industry 4.0. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about cryptocurrency and supply chain 4.0. So, hey, Anibal. Hey, Douglas. Welcome. Good to see you all here. Uh, let us know where you're joining from today. We have a global community, so uh, it's cool to see where everyone is coming. Hey, everyone. Shout out to HiveMQ. Yes. Huge shout out to HiveMQ. They actually have a couple use cases that used HiveMQ uh, specifically that we're going to be covering in this week's upcoming Vibe board video. So, all right. Um, so with that said, uh, hey, Devin from Calgary. Nice. Welcome. Someone said this week, hey, uh, who's, is there anyone in this Discord server from um, Canada? Yeah, there's a lot of people from Canada. Uh, in fact, only like 30% of our audience is from the States, right? We have a really global audience. Um, yeah, thanks, HiveMQ. Quick little side note. Uh, let me go ahead and share my screen here. Uh, this actually just came out today. If you search cryptocurrency, the top stories are Tim Cook says, crypto, says he owns cryptocurrency and he's been interested in it for a while. This was one hour ago. Verge broke news saying he owns cryptocurrency and Apple is looking into cryptocurrency, says CEO Tim Cook. Can you guys imagine? Um, can you guys imagine if every iPhone user had access to cryptocurrency? Do you know how many users that is? That's a lot of that's a lot of iPhones. That's a lot of adoption. Um, there will be a in the YouTube chat. There's a poll answer whether or not you own cryptocurrency. Um, and then we're also going to have some free resources at the end. Uh, so make sure to stick around to the end so that way um, you guys can take advantage of those free resources. Again, today's uh, agenda is 
number one, what is crypt, what is blockchain? And number two, how can blockchain apply to supply chain? Uh, so with that said, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you everyone for joining. Um, and thank you again, HiveMQ for sponsoring. Let me go ahead and stop sharing. All right. What does so, it mean to have a Bitcoin? Let me know Can if you guys can hear that too. Bitcoin, that it's a fully digital currency with no government to issue it and that no banks need to manage accounts and verify transactions. And also that no one really knows who invented it. And yet many people don't know the answer to this question, at least not in full. To get there, and to make sure that the technical details underlying the answer actually feel motivated, what we're going to do is walk through, step by step, how you might have invented your own version of Bitcoin. We'll start with you keeping track of payments with your friends using a communal ledger, and then as you start to trust your friends and the world around you less and less, and if you're clever enough to bring in a few ideas from cryptography to help circumvent the need for trust, what you end up with is what's called a cryptocurrency. You see, Bitcoin is just the first implemented example of a cryptocurrency. And now there are thousands more on exchanges with traditional currencies. Walking the path of inventing your own can help to set the foundations for understanding some of the more recent players in the game and recognizing when and why there's room for different design choices. In fact, one of the reasons I chose this topic is that in the last year, there's been a huge amount of attention and investment and well, honestly, hype directed at these currencies. And I'm not going to comment or speculate on the current or future exchange rates, but I think we'd all agree that anyone looking to buy a cryptocurrency should really know what it is. And I don't just mean in terms of analogies with vague connections to gold mining. I mean an actual direct description of what the computers are doing when we send, receive, and create cryptocurrencies. One thing worth stressing, by the way, is that even though you and I are going to dig into the details here, and that takes meaningful time, you don't actually need to know those details if you just want to use the cryptocurrency. Just like you don't need to know the details of what happens under the hood when you swipe a credit card. Like any digital payment, there's lots of user-friendly applications that let you just send and receive the currencies without thinking about what's going on. The difference is that the backbone underlying this is not a bank that verifies transactions. Instead, it's a clever system of decentralized trustless verification based on some of the math born in cryptography. But to start, I want you to actually set aside the thought of cryptocurrencies and all that just for a few minutes. We're going to begin the story with something more down to earth, ledgers and digital signatures. If you and your friends exchange money pretty frequently, you know, paying your share of the dinner bill and such, it can be inconvenient to exchange cash all the time. So you might keep a communal ledger that records all of the payments that you intend to make some point in the future. You know, Alice pays Bob $20, Bob pays Charlie $40, things like that. This ledger is going to be something public and accessible to everyone, like a website where anyone can go and just add new lines. And let's say that at the end of every month, you all get together, look at the list of transactions, and settle up. If you spent more than you received, you put that money in the pot, and if you received more than you spent, you take that money out. So the protocol for being part of this very simple system might look like this. Anyone can add lines to the ledger, and at the end of every month, you all get together and settle up. Now one problem with a public ledger like this is that anyone can add a line. So what's to prevent Bob from going and writing Alice pays Bob $100 without Alice approving? How are we supposed to trust that all of these transactions are what the sender meant them to be? Well, this is where the first bit of cryptography comes in. Digital signatures. Like handwritten signatures, the idea here is that Alice should be able to add something next to that transaction that proves that she has seen it and that she's approved of it. And it should be infeasible for anyone else to forge that signature. At first, it might seem like a digital signature shouldn't even be possible. I mean, whatever data makes up that signature can just be read and copied by a computer, so how do you prevent forgeries? Well, the way this works is that everyone generates what's called a public key private key pair, each of which looks like some string of bits. The private key is sometimes also called a secret key so that we can abbreviate it as SK while abbreviating the public key as PK. Now, as the name suggests, this secret key, it's something you want to keep to yourself. In the real world, 
your handwritten signature looks the same no matter what document you're signing. But a digital signature is actually much stronger, because it changes for different messages. It looks like some string of ones and zeros, commonly something like 256 bits, and altering the message even slightly completely changes what the signature on that message should look like. Speaking a little more formally, producing a signature involves a function that depends both on the message itself and on your private key. The private key ensures that only you can produce that signature, and the fact that it depends on the message means that no one can just copy one of your signatures and then forge it on another message. Hand in hand with this is a second function used to verify that a signature is valid. And this is where the public key comes into play. All it does is output true or false to indicate if this was a signature produced by the private key associated with the public key that you're using for verification. I won't go into the details of how exactly both these functions work, but the idea is that it should be completely infeasible to find a valid signature if you don't know the secret key. Specifically, there's no strategy better than just guessing and checking random signatures, which you can check using the public key that everyone knows. Now think about how many signatures there are with a length of 256 bits. That's 2 to the power of 256. This is a stupidly large number. To call it astronomically large would be giving way too much credit to astronomy. In fact, I made a supplemental video devoted just to illustrating what a huge number this is. Right here, let's just say that when you verify that a signature against a given message is valid, you can feel extremely confident that the only way someone could have produced it is if they knew the secret key associated with the public key you used for- Quick pause. Um, this assumes that P does not equal NP. For those of you guys that are familiar with the problem, P equals NP or P does not equal NP. Um, so that there's some sort of breakthrough and there's, there, there is a backdoor, then all, all of RSA and all of hash functions are basically, then there can be a reverse engineering. But it's more likely than not, P does not equal NP. So that's why we have security. So quick pause, quick side note verification. Now making sure that people sign transactions on the ledger is pretty good, but there's one slight loophole. If Alice signs a transaction like Alice pays Bob $100, even though Bob can't forge Alice's signature on a new message, he could just copy that same line as many times as he wants. I mean, that message signature combination remains valid. To get around this, what we do is make it so that when you sign a transaction, the message has to also include some sort of unique ID associated with that transaction. That way, if Alice pays Bob $100 multiple times, each one of those lines on the ledger requires a completely new signature. Alright, great. Digital signatures remove a huge aspect of trust in this initial protocol. But even still, if you were to really do this, you would be relying on an honor system of sorts. Namely, you're trusting that everyone will actually follow through and settle up in cash at the end of each month. What if, for example, Charlie racks up thousands of dollars in debt and just refuses to show up? The only real reason to revert back to cash to settle up is if some people, I'm looking at you Charlie, owe a lot of money. So maybe you have the clever idea that you never actually have to settle up in cash as long as you have some way to prevent people from spending too much more than they take in. Maybe what you do is start by having everyone pay $100 into the pot, and then have the first few lines of the ledger read, Alice gets $100, Bob gets $100, Charlie gets $100, etc. Now, just don't accept any transactions where someone is spending more than they already have on that ledger. For example, if the first two transactions are Charlie pays Alice $50, and Charlie pays Bob $50, if he were to try to add Charlie pays you $20, that would be invalid, as invalid as if he had never signed it. Notice, this means that verifying a transaction requires knowing the full history of transactions up to that point. And this is, more or less, also going to be true in cryptocurrencies, though there is a little room for optimization. What's interesting here is that this step removes the connection between the ledger and actual physical US dollars. In theory, if everyone in the world was using this ledger, you could live your whole life just sending and receiving money on this ledger 
without ever having to convert to real US dollars. In fact, to emphasize this point, let's start referring to the quantities on the ledger as ledger dollars, or LD for short. You are, of course, free to exchange ledger dollars for real US dollars. For example, maybe Alice gives Bob a $10 bill in the real world. In exchange for him adding and signing the transaction, Bob pays Alice 10 ledger dollars to this communal ledger. But exchanges like that, they're not going to be guaranteed by the protocol. It's now more analogous to how you might exchange dollars for euros or any other currency on the open market. It's just its own independent thing. This is the first important thing to understand about Bitcoin, or any other cryptocurrency. What it is, is a ledger. The history of transactions is the currency. Of course, with Bitcoin, money doesn't enter the ledger with people buying in using cash. I'll get to how new money enters the ledger in just a few minutes. But before that, there's actually an even more significant difference between our current system of ledger dollars and how cryptocurrencies work. So far, I've said that this ledger is in some public place, like a website where anyone can add new lines. But that would require trusting a central location, namely, who hosts the website? Who controls the rules of adding new lines? To remove that bit of trust, we'll have everybody keep their own copy of the ledger. Then when you want to make a transaction, like Alice pays Bob 100 ledger dollars, what you do is broadcast that out into the world for people to hear, and to record on their own private ledgers. But unless you do something more, this system is absurdly bad. How could you get everyone to agree on what the right ledger is? When Bob receives a transaction, like Alice pays Bob 10 ledger dollars, how can he be sure that everyone else received and believes that same transaction? That he'll be able to later on go to Charlie and use those same 10 ledger dollars to make a transaction? Really, imagine yourself just listening to transactions being broadcast. How can you be sure that everyone else is recording the same transactions and in the same order? This is really the heart of the issue. This is an interesting puzzle. Can you come up with a protocol for how to accept or reject transactions and in what order so that you can feel confident that anyone else in the world who's following that same protocol has a personal ledger that looks the same as yours? This is the problem addressed in the original Bitcoin paper. At a high level, the solution that Bitcoin offers is to trust whichever ledger has the most computational work put into it. I'll take a moment to explain exactly what that means. It involves this thing called a cryptographic hash function. The general idea that we'll build to is that if you use computational work as a basis for what to trust, you can make it so that fraudulent transactions and conflicting ledgers would require an infeasible amount of computation to bring about. Again, I'll remind you that this is getting well into the weeds beyond what anyone would need to know just to use a currency like this. But it's a really cool idea, and if you understand it, you understand the heart of Bitcoin and of other cryptocurrencies. So first things first, what's a hash function? The inputs for one of these functions can be any kind of message or file, it really doesn't matter. And the output is a string of bits with some kind of fixed length, like 256 bits. This output is called the hash or the digest of the message, and the intent is that it looks random. It's not random, it always gives the same output for a given input. But the idea is that if you slightly change the input, maybe editing just one of the characters, the resulting hash changes completely. In fact, for the hash function that I'm showing here, called SHA-256, the way the output changes as you slightly change that input is entirely unpredictable. You see, this is not just any hash function. It's a cryptographic hash function. That means it's infeasible to compute in the reverse direction. If I show you some string of ones and zeros and ask you to find an input so that the SHA-256 hash of that input gives this exact string of bits, you will have no better method than to just guess and check. And again, if you want to feel for how much computation would be needed to go through 2 to the 256 guesses, just take a look at the supplement video. I actually had way too much fun writing that thing. You might think that if you just really dig into the details of how exactly this function works, you could reverse engineer the appropriate input without having to guess and check. But no one has ever figured out a way to do that. 
Interestingly, there's no cold, hard, rigorous proof that it's hard to compute in the reverse direction. And yet, a huge amount of modern security depends on cryptographic hash functions and the idea that they have this property. If you were to look at what algorithms underlie the secure connection that your browser is making with YouTube right now, or that it makes with your bank, you will likely see the name SHA-256 show up in there. For right now, our focus will just be on how such a function can prove that a particular list of transactions is associated with a large amount of computational effort. Imagine someone shows you a list of transactions, and they say, hey, I found a special number, so that when you put that number at the end of this list of transactions, and apply SHA-256 to the entire thing, the first 30 bits of that output are all zeros. How hard do you think it was for them to find that number? Well, for a random message, the probability that a hash happens to start with 30 successive zeros is 1 in 2 to the 30, which is about 1 in a billion. And because SHA-256 is a cryptographic hash function, the only way to find a special number like that is just guessing and checking. So this person almost certainly had to go through about a billion different numbers before finding this special one. And once you know that number, it's quick to verify. You just run the hash and see that there are 30 zeros. So in other words, you can verify that they went through a large amount of work, but without having to go through that same effort yourself. This is called a proof of work. And importantly, all of this work is intrinsically tied to the list of transactions. If you change one of those transactions, even slightly, it would completely change the hash. So you'd have to go through another billion guesses to find a new proof of work, a new number that makes it so that the hash of the altered list together with this new number starts with 30 zeros. So now think back to our distributed ledger situation. Everyone is there broadcasting transactions and we want a way for them to agree on what the correct ledger is. As I said, the core idea behind the original Bitcoin paper is to have everyone trust whichever ledger has the most work put into it. The way this works is to first organize a given ledger into blocks, where each block consists of a list of transactions together with a proof of work. That is, a special number so that the hash of the whole block starts with a bunch of zeros. For the moment, let's say that it has to start with, oh, 60 zeros, but later we'll return back to a more systematic way you might want to choose that number. In the same way that a transaction is only considered valid when it's signed by the sender, a block is only considered valid if it has a proof of work. And also, to make sure that there's a standard order to these blocks, we'll make it so that a block has to contain the hash of the previous block at its header. That way, if you were to go back and change any one of the blocks, or to swap the order of two blocks, it would change the block that comes after it, which changes that block's hash which changes the one that comes after it, and so on. That would require redoing all of the work, finding a new special number for each of these blocks that makes their hashes start with 60 zeros. Because blocks are chained together like this, instead of calling it a ledger, it's common to call it a blockchain. As part of our updated protocol, we'll now allow anyone in the world to be a block creator. What that means is that they're gonna listen for transactions being broadcast, collect them into some block, and then do a whole bunch of work to find a special number that makes the hash of that block start with 60 zeros. Then once they find it, they broadcast out the block that they found. To reward a block creator for all this work, when she puts together a block, we'll allow her to include a very special transaction at the top of it, in which she gets, say, 10 ledger dollars out of thin air. This is called the block reward, and it's an exception to our usual rules about whether or not to accept transactions. It doesn't come from anyone, so it doesn't have to be signed. And it also means that the total number of ledger dollars in our economy increases with each new block. Creating blocks is often called mining, since it requires doing a lot of work, and it introduces new bits of currency into the economy. But when you hear or read about miners, Keep in mind that what they're really doing is listening for transactions, creating blocks, broadcasting those blocks, and getting rewarded with new money for doing so. From the miner's perspective, each block is kind of like a miniature lottery, where everyone is guessing numbers as fast as they can until one lucky individual finds a special number that makes the hash of the block start with many zeros, and they get the reward. For, for anyone, anyone else who just, just wants, wants to use, use this system, system to make, make payment, 
quick distinction. Um, most block rewards are won by mining pools. So a bunch of miners get together into a pool. And if that pool wins the block reward that's split equally amongst the miners. Instead of listening for transactions, they all start listening just for blocks being broadcast by miners and updating their own personal copies of the blockchain. Now the key addition to our protocol is that if you hear two distinct blockchains with conflicting transaction histories, you defer to the longest one, the one with the most work put into it. If there's a tie, just wait until you hear an additional block that makes one of them longer. So even though there's no central authority and everyone is maintaining their own copy of the blockchain, if everyone agrees to give preference to whichever blockchain has the most work put into it, we have a way to arrive at decentralized consensus. To see why this makes for a trustworthy system, and to understand at what point you should trust that a payment is legit, it's actually really helpful to walk through exactly what it would take to fool someone using this system. Maybe Alice is trying to fool Bob with a fraudulent block. Namely, she tries to send him one that includes her paying him 100 ledger dollars, but without broadcasting that block to the rest of the network. That way, everyone else still thinks that she has those 100 ledger dollars. To do this, she would have to find a valid proof of work before all of the other miners, each working on their own block. And that could definitely happen. Maybe Alice just happens to win this miniature lottery before everyone else. But Bob is still going to be hearing the broadcasts made by other miners. So to keep him believing this fraudulent block, Alice would have to do all of the work herself to keep adding blocks on this special fork in Bob's blockchain that's different from what he's hearing from the rest of the miners. Remember, as per the protocol, Bob always trusts the longest chain that he knows about. Alice might be able to keep this up for a few blocks if just by chance she happens to find blocks more quickly than the rest of the miners on the network all combined. But unless she has close to 50% of the computing resources among all of the miners, the probability becomes overwhelming that the blockchain that all of the other miners are working on grows faster than the single fraudulent blockchain that Alice is feeding to Bob. So, after enough time, Bob's just going to reject what he's hearing from Alice in favor of the longer chain that everyone else is working on. Notice, that means that you shouldn't necessarily trust a new block that you hear immediately. Instead, you should wait for several new blocks to be added on top of it. If you still haven't heard of any longer blockchains, you can trust that this block is part of the same chain that everyone else is using. And with that, we've hit all the main ideas. This distributed ledger system based on a proof of work is more or less how the Bitcoin protocol works and how many other cryptocurrencies work. There's just a few details to clear up. Earlier, I said that the proof of work might be to find a special number so that the hash of the block starts with 60 zeros. Well, the way the actual Bitcoin protocol works is to periodically change that number of zeros so that it should take, on average, 10 minutes to find a new block. So as there are more and more miners added to the network, the challenge actually gets harder and harder in such a way that this miniature lottery only has about one winner every 10 minutes. Many newer cryptocurrencies actually have much shorter block times than that. And all of the money in Bitcoin ultimately comes from some block reward. In the beginning, these rewards were 50 Bitcoin per block. There's actually a great website you can go to called Block Explorer that makes it easy to look through the Bitcoin blockchain. And if you look at the very first few blocks on the chain, they contain no transactions other than that 50 Bitcoin reward to the miner. But every 210,000 blocks, which is about every four years, that reward gets cut in half. So right now, the reward is 12.5 Bitcoin per block. And because this reward decreases geometrically over time, it means there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin in existence. However, this doesn't mean that miners will stop earning money. In addition to the block reward, miners can also pick up transaction fees. The way this works is that whenever you make a payment, you can purely optionally include a little transaction fee with it that's going to go to the miner of whichever block includes that payment. The reason you might do that is to incentivize miners to actually include the transaction that you broadcast into the next block. You see, in Bitcoin, each block is limited to about 2400 transactions, 
which many critics argue is unnecessarily restrictive. For comparison, Visa processes an average of about 1,700 transactions per second, and they're capable of handling more than 24,000 per second. This comparatively slow processing on Bitcoin makes for higher transaction fees, since that's what determines which transactions miners choose to include in a new block. All of this is far from a comprehensive coverage of cryptocurrencies. There are still many nuances and alternate design choices that I haven't even touched. But my hope is that this can provide a stable wait-but-why style tree trunk of understanding for anyone looking to add a few more branches with further reading. Like I said at the start, one of the motives behind this is that a lot of money has started flowing towards cryptocurrencies, and even though I don't want to make any claims about whether that's a good or bad investment, I really do think that it's healthy for people getting into the game to at least know the fundamentals of the technology. As always, my sincerest thanks to those of you making this channel possible on Patreon. I understand that- Alright, so that was the lesson one, part one. What is what is a uh, blockchain? Um, if this isn't getting you guys excited, I don't know. I don't really know what will. So um, let's move into part two: building a transparent supply chain, leveraging blockchain. Now that we know what blockchain is, we know how it works down to a fundamental level with cryptography and um, you know a, a decentralized authority. Let's move into building a transparent supply chain. If you guys have any questions, leave them in the chat and we'll get to them at the end. Okay. I'll also leave links to this uh, in the description. Um, and thanks again, 3Blue1Brown for making an awesome video back all the way in 2017. Um, it was funny, he said, and the miner or and the payer leaves a 0 .001 uh, block fee, which would now be like $67. So, <laughs> um, Thank you, Marush. All right. So building a transparent supply chain. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. It should take about 20 minutes. You guys can just sort of listen um, like it, as, as if it were a podcast. And then it should start to really uh, spawn some ideas for you guys on how we can leverage this, this community, right? How we can use this to help manufacturers do more with less. All right. So this is an article from Harvard Business Review. Summary. One of the most promising applications of emerging blockchain technology is supply chain management. Blockchain, the digital record keeping system developed for cryptocurrency networks can help supply chain partners with some of their challenges. Blockchain, the digital record keeping technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency networks is a potential game changer in the financial world. But another area where it holds great promise is supply chain management. Blockchain can greatly improve supply chains by enabling faster and more efficient uh, delivery of products, enhancing products traceability, improving coordination between partners, and aiding access to financing. To better understand this opportunity, we studied seven major U.S. corporations that are leaders in supply chain management and trying to figure out how blockchain can help, the help solve the challenges they face. These companies are Corning, Emerson, Hayward, IBM, MasterCard, and two others that wish to remain anonymous. Operated in very indus varied industries, manufacturing, retailing, technology, and financial services. Some of them are just beginning to explore blockchain, and a few are conducting pilots, and others have moved even further and are working with supply chain partners to develop applications. This article describes what we've learned about the state of play, the advantages that blockchain can provide, and how the use of blockchain in supply chains will differ from its use in cryptocurrencies. Blockchain is a distributed or decentralized ledger, a digital system for record recording transactions among multiple parties in a verifiable and tamper-proof way. The ledger itself can also be programmed to trigger transactions automatically. For cryptocurrency networks that are designed to replace fiat currencies, the main function of the blockchain is to enable an unlimited number of anonymous parties to transact privately and securely with one another without a central intermediary. For supply chains, it is to allow a limited number of known parties to protect their business operations against malicious actors while supporting better performance. Supply chain or successful blockchain applications for supply chain will require new permissioned blockchain blockchains, new standards for representing transactions on a blockchain, and new rules to govern the system, which are all in various stages of being developed.
advantages of blockchain. Led by companies such as Walmart and Procter Gamble, considerable advances in supply chain information sharing has taken place since the 1990s, thanks to use of ERP systems, enterprise resource planning. However, vis visibility remains a challenge in large supply chains involving complex transactions. To illustrate the, limited, the limitations of the current world of financial ledger entries and ERP systems, along with potential benefits of a world of blockchain, let us describe a hypothetical scenario, a simple transaction involving a retailer that sources a product from a supplier and a bank that provides the working capital the supplier needs to fill the order. The transaction involves information flows, inventory, inventory flows, and financial flows. Note that a given flow does not result in a financial ledger entries at all three parties involved. That's important. The state and state-of-art, state-of-the-art ERP systems, manual audit, audits, and inspections can't reliably connect the three flows, which makes it hard to eliminate execution errors, improve decision-making, and resolve supply chain conflicts. Capturing the details of a simple transaction, conventional versus blockchain systems. The financial ledgers of uh, ERP uh, systems now used don't reliably allow the three parties involved in a simple supply chain transaction to see all of the relevant flows of information, inventory, and money. A blockchain system eliminates the blind spots. So here's a here's an actual PDF of what what we're talking about here. So um, this red red block is the retailer, the blue block is the supplier or manufacturer. And the green one is the bank. Orange arrow is information flow. Purple arrow is inventory flow. And um, this gray arrow is financial flow. So here's on the left, conventional record keeping. And on the right, how it would work with blockchain. So step one, retailer places an order with a supplier and supplier acknowledges the receipt of the order. So information flows back and forth. There are no blind parties. On the blockchain, you would see you added um, one block for each of those information flows. Step two, supplier requests a loan from the bank and the bank provides financing to the supplier. So information flowing to the bank, capital flowing to the supplier, and the blind party in this case is the store. They have no, no idea that that transaction took place. And here's, here on the right is the blocks that were added. Step three, supplier invoices and ships the merchandise to the retailer. So supply, uh, information goes to the store and inventory flows to the store. And in this case, the bank doesn't even know that that occurred. Step four, hello? All right. Step four, uh, retailer pays the supplier for the merchandise. So capital goes from store to the manufacturer. Uh, the bank, again, doesn't know that that took place, although they would probably want to. And that would probably reduce risk, right? Um, and step five, supplier repays the bank and then the bank closes the loan record. Information flow to the bank, or no, capital flow to the bank, information flow back to the manufacturer. The store is blind of that, uh, of that transaction. And last but not least, um, the retailer returns unsold or damaged merchandise to the, to the supplier. Uh, so inventory flows back to the supplier information flows back to the supplier and then the supplier refunds the store. So on the scenario on the right, all three parties have insight to that entire transaction loop. So let's go back to the, to the article. Execution errors, such as mistakes in inventory data, missing shipments and duplicate payments are often impossible to detect in real time. Even when a problem is discovered after the fact, it is difficult to and expensive to pinpoint its source or fix it by tracing the sequence of activities recorded in available ledger entries and documents. Although ERP systems can capture all types of flows, it can be tough to assess which journal entries on accounts receivable payments and credit re for returns and so on correspond to which inventory transaction. This is especially true for companies engaged in thousands of transactions each day across a large network of supply chain partners and products. Making matters worse, supply chain activities are often extremely complicated, 
far more so than the exhibit, <laughs> exhibit de depicts. For example, order shipments and payments may not sync up neatly because an order may be split into several shipments and corresponding invoices or multiple orders may be combined into a single shipment. One common approach to improving supply chain execution is to verify transactions through audits. Audits, Auditing is necessary for ensuring compliance with contracts, but it's of limited help to improving decision-making to address operational deficiencies. Do more with less. Consider the problem a food company faces when its products reach the end of their shelf life in a retail store. A study shows that a, a study that one of us, Vishal, worked on a um, worked on with a major manufacturer of packaged foods, found that an audit or an inspection of inventory in a store can reveal the number of expired items, but it won't explain the causes. Those include glitches in any part of the supply chain, such as inefficient inventory management upstream, suboptimal allocation of products to stores, weak or sporadic demand and inaccurate shelf rotation, failure to put older products in front of newer ones. A record of all those activities can reduce expirations. Another way to strengthen supply chain operations would be to mark inventory with either RFID tags or electronic product codes that adhere to GS1 standards, globally accepted rules for handling supply chain data, and then to integrate a company into and then to integrate a company's ERP system with those of its suppliers. We talk about that all the time um, to 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 construct a complete record of transactions. This would eliminate execution errors and improve traceability. However, the experience the experiences of companies we studied show that integrating ERP systems is expensive and time consuming. Large organizations may have more than a hundred legacy ERP systems a result of organizational changes, mergers, and acquisitions over time. Those systems often do not easily communicate with one another, except through the unified namespace, and may even differ in how they define data fields. One large company told us it had 17 ledgers in separate ERP systems associated with a single activity. Trucking and its, supply, its suppliers and distributors had their own ledgers in ERP systems. As you can see, this is creating a nightmare. When blockchain record keeping is used, assets such as units of inventory, orders, loans, and bills of lading are given unique identifiers which serve as digital tokens, similar to Bitcoins. Additionally, participants in the blockchain are given unique identifiers or digital signatures, which they use to sign the blocks they added to the blockchain. Every step of the transaction is recorded on the blockchain as a transfer of the corresponding token from one participant to another. Consider how the transaction in our example looks when represented on a shared blockchain. Refer again to the exhibit. First, the retailer generates an order and sends it to the supplier. At this point, since no exchange of goods or services has taken place, there would be no entries in a financial ledger. However, with blockchain, the retailer records the digital token for the order and the supplier logs in the order and confirms to the retailer that the order has been received. An action that, again, gets recorded onto the blockchain, but would not generate any entry in a financial ledger. Next, the supplier requests working capital loan from the bank to finance the production of the goods. The bank verifies the order on, a share, on the shared blockchain, approves the loan, and then records the loan's digital token on the same blockchain, and so on. A blockchain is a valuable is is valuable partly because it compromises a chronological string of blocks integrating all three types of flows financial inventory and information into a string of blocks um, and it captures details that aren't recorded into a financial ledger system moreover each block is encrypted and distributed to all participants who maintain their own copies of the blockchain Thanks to these features, the blockchain provides a complete, trustworthy, and tamper-proof audit trail of the three categories of activities in the supply chain. Blockchain thus greatly reduces, if not eliminates, the kind of execution, traceability, and coordination problems that we've discussed. Since participants have their own individual copies of the blockchain, each party can review the status of a transaction, identify errors, and hold counterparties responsible for their, for their actions. No participant can overwrite past data because doing so would entail having to rewrite all the subsequent blocks on all shared copies of the blockchain.
The bank in our example can also use the blockchain to improve supply chain financing. It can make better lending decisions because by viewing the blockchain, it can verify the transaction between the supplier and the retailer without having to conduct physical audits and financial reviews, which are tedious and error-prone processes. And including lending records in the blockchain, along with data about invoicing payments and the physical movement of goods, can make transactions more cost-effective, easier to audit, and less risky for all partners involved. Furthermore, many of these functions can be automated through smart contracts in which lines of computer code use data from the blockchain to verify when contractual obligations have been met and payments can be issued. Smart contracts can be programmed to assess the status of a transaction and automatically take actions such as releasing payment, recording ledger entries, and flagging exceptions in the need of a manual intervention. It's important to note that a blockchain would not replace broad range transacting of broad range of transaction processing, accounting and management control functions performed by ERP systems, such as invoicing payment and reporting. Indeed, the encrypted link, linked list or chain-like data structure of a blockchain is not suited for fast storage and retrieval or even efficient storage. Instead, the blockchain would interface with legacy systems across participating firms. Each firm would generate blocks of transactions from its internal ERP system and then add them to the blockchain. This would make it easy to integrate various flows of transactions across firms. Let's take a look at the applications. Now let's take a look an in-depth look at how companies we studied are applying blockchain to tackle needs that current technology and methods can address. One, enhancing traceability. The US Drug Supply Chain Security Act of 2013 requires pharmaceutical companies to identify and trace prescription drugs to protect consumers from counterfeit, stolen, or harmful products. Driven by that mandate, a large pharmaceutical company in our study is collaborating with the supply chain partners to use blockchain for this purpose. Drug, I was wonder who that could be. Drug inventory is tagged with electronic product codes that adhere to GS1 standards. As each, as each unit of inventory flows from one firm to another, it is tagged, scanned, and recorded on the blockchain, creating a history of all items all the way through the supply chain from its source to the end customer. Some early success in piloting this approach in the United States has led the company to conduct more pilots in other locations and move towards broad implementation in Europe. Meanwhile, IBM is working on a similar effort to create a safer food supply chain. It has found that IBM Food Trust and, and it, it has founded the IBM Food Trust and entered into a partnership with Walmart to use blockchain for tracing fresh produce and other food products. These kind of applications require minimal sharing of information. Purchase orders, invoices, and payments do not need to be included on the same blockchain. As a result, companies that are wary of sharing competitive data are more willing to participate on the platform. The benefits are clear. If a company discovers a faulty product, the blockchain enables the firm and its supply chain partners to trace the product, identify all suppliers involved with it, identify production and shipment batches associated with it, and efficiently recall it. If a product is perishable, such as fresh produce and certain drugs are, the blockchain lets participating companies monitor quality automatically. A refrigerated container equipped with an Internet of Things device to monitor the temperature can record any unsafe fluctuations on the blockchain. And if there are concerns about the authenticity of a product that a retailer returns, the blockchain can allay them because counterfeit goods would lack verification history on the blockchain. We'll talk about how companies are trying to prevent corrupt actors from introducing counterfeit goods into both supply chains and their blockchains. Companies across industries are therefore exploring this application of blockchain, motivated either by regulations requiring them to demonstrate prov provenance of their products or by downstream customers seeking the capability to trace component inventory. Application number two, increasing efficiency and speed and reducing disruptions. Emerson, a multinational manufacturing and engineering company, has a complex supply chain. It involves thousands of components across many suppliers, customers, and locations. Michael Train, the president of Emerson, told us that supply chains have often to contend with long, unpredictable lead times and lack of visibility. As, as a result, a small delay or disruption in any, any part of the supply chain can lead to excess inventory, 
and stock outs in other parts. He believes that blockchain could help overcome these challenges. Here's a simple illustration of the problem and how blockchain could address it. Consider product A, which uses components C1 and C2, and product B, which uses components C1 and C3. If a manufacturer of product B is held up because of disruption in product in the production of component C3, the optimal move is to temporarily allocate inventory of C1 to product A until the disruption is resolved. However, if all of the products and components are manufactured by different companies with limited visibility into one another's inventory, what could easily happen is that excess inventory of C1 piles up and the making of product B, even if the maker of product A has a stock out of C1. One solution for the companies in question is to, to agree to centralize their data on production and inventory allocation decisions in a common repository. But imagine the level but imagine the level of integration that would that would entail. All companies involved would have to trust the others with the with their data and accept centralized decisions, regardless of whether or not they are partners or competitors, and that's not realistic. A more practical solution is for participating companies to share their inventory flows on a blockchain and allow each company to make its own decisions using common, complete information. Companies would utilize a, a Kanban system to place orders with one another and manage production. Kanban cards would be assigned to, product, per, to the produce items and the blockchain would record digital tokens representing the Kanban cards. This would enhance the visibility of inventory flows across companies and make lead times more predictable. Emerson is not the only company that thinks blockchain could increase efficiency and speed of its supply chain. So does Hayward, a multinational manufacturer of swimming pool equipment. Disclosure, Vishal has done a small amount of consulting for Hayward. And he has also been hired to advise a, uh, a startup that's developing blockchain applications for the palm oil industry. According to Don Smith, Hayward's senior vice president of operations, it is possible to treat finished goods, process capacity, work in process inventory, WIP, and raw materials like a digital currency. If you do, he says, machine time and inventory at various stages can be reliably assigned to customer orders. Blockchain makes this possible by solving the double spend problem, the erroneous allocation of the same unit of capacity or inventory to two different orders. Walmart Canada has already begun using blockchain with the trucking companies that transport its inventory. A shared blockchain makes it possible to synchronize logistics data, track shipments, and automate payments without requiring significant changes to the trucking firm's internal processes or information technology systems. Part of the appeal of using blockchain to enhance supply chain efficiency and its speed is that these applications, much like those for improving traceability, require participating companies to share only limited data. In this case, just inventory or shipment data. Moreover, these applications are useful even within large organizations with multiple ERP systems. Application number three improving financial financing, contracting, or international transactions. When inventory information and financial flows are shared among firms through a blockchain, significant gains in supply chain financing, contracting, and doing business internationally are possible. Consider the matter of financing. Banks that provide working capital and trade credit to firms face a well-known problem of inventory information asymmetry regarding a borrower's firm's business the quality of its assets, and its liabilities. For example, a company might borrow money from several banks against the same asset or request a loan for one purpose and then use it for another. Banks design their processes to control such risks, which increases transaction costs, slows down access to capital, and reduces the capital available to small firms. Such friction are, detri are detrimental not only to banks, but also firms that need cheap working capital. Another activity ripe for improvement is accounts payable management and an elaborate process that involves invoicing, reconciling invoices against purchase orders, keeping track of terms and payments, and conducting reviews and approvals at each step. Even though ERP systems have automated many of these steps, considerable manual intervention is still needed. And since neither of the transacting firms have complete information, conflicts often arise. A counterfeit can be traced to its source using the blockchain trail. The third area of opportunity is cross-border trade, 
which involves manual processes, physical documents, and many intermediaries and multiple checks and verification at ports of entry and exit. Transactions are slow, costly, and plagued by low visibility into the status of shipment. The, retail, the, the retailing and financial services companies we studied are conducting pilot blockchain projects or developing platforms in all three areas. By connecting inventory information and financial flows and sharing them with all of the transacting parties, a blockchain enables companies to reconcile purchase orders, invoices, and payments much more easily and track the progress of a transaction with counterparties. When the supplier receives an order, a bank with access to the blockchain can immediately provide the supplier with working capital, and when the merchandise is delivered to the buyer, the bank can promptly obtain payments. Since there is a readily available audit trail and reconciliations can be automated, using smart applications that rely on blockchain data, conflicts between the bank and the borrowing firm are eliminated. Creating a workable technology. The companies we studied have found that using blockchain and supply chain management will require the creation of new rules because the needs of supply chain differ from the needs of cryptocurrency networks in important ways. The blockchain protocol for the Bitcoin network is a marvelous system that simultaneously achieves several goals. It provides remarkably secure, irrevocable record of financial transactions, minimizes the double spend problem, and provides proof of ownership of a digital coin. It also does so without relying on a centralized authority and while allowing participants to remain anonymous and enter and exit the network freely, edge-driven. To achieve this, however, the Bitcoin network sacrifices speed and consumes a large amount of energy to mine Bitcoins and has some vulnerability to hacking, mainly the 51% attack. Supply chains do not need to make the same trade-offs because they operate in different ways and have different characteristics. Let's examine those in depth. Known participants. Supply chains require private blockchains amongst known parties not open blockchains among anonymous users, so that members of a supply chain can ascertain the source and quality of their inventory. Each unit of it must be firmly coupled with the identity of its particular owner at every step along the way. Consequently, only known parties can be allowed to participate in such a blockchain, which means that companies must receive permission to join the system. Moreover, permission must be granted selectively. That's because the open and decentralized structure of blockchain poses a risk to data privacy. When companies post transactions on a blockchain, that data can be accessed by any participant. As the volume of data swells, it could potentially be misused to gather competitive intelligence, trade stocks, or even predict market movements. For security reasons, therefore, the blockchain participants need to be vetted and approved. Building a trust, trusted group of partners which, with which to share data on a blockchain will entail overcoming several challenges. One is the need for a governance mechanism to determine the rules of the system, such as who can be invited to join the network, what data is shared, how it's encrypted, who has access, how disputes will be resolved, and what the scope for the use of IoT and smart contracts. Another challenge is figuring out how to address the impact that blockchain could have on pricing and inventory allocation decisions by making information about the quantity or age of products in the supply chain more transparent. It's hard to predict where in the supply chain the costs and benefits of this transparency will fall. For these reasons, the company that, companies that we studied were focusing on narrow applications such as the traceability of drugs and food products and the management of accounts payable, applications that are supported by well-defined use cases or regulatory requirements. Firms limit the types of information recorded on the blockchain to reduce risk to data privacy and make the system more readily acceptable to supply chain partners. Simpler consensus protocols. Blockchain requires a consensus protocol, some mechanism for maintaining a single version of the history of transactions that is agreed upon by everyone. Since cryptocurrency networks are a peer-to-peer -peer without a central authority, they use a complex method called proof of work. It ensures that all the transactions on the network are accepted by the majority of the participants, but unfortunately it also limits the speed at which new blocks can be added. Consequently, it is too slow to handle speed and volume of transactions and supply chains. Consider the pharmaceutical industry where 4 billion saleable units enter the drug supply chain every year in the United States. 
Each unit has, is handled three to five times on average. That translates to roughly 30, 33 to 55 million transactions a day on average. The Bitcoin network, in contrast, only allows for about 360,000 transactions in a day. Fortunately, if a blockchain is per, permiss, per, permissioned in private, the proof-of-work method is not necessary to establish consensus. Simpler methods can be used to determine who has the right to add in the next block on the blockchain. One such method is a round-robin protocol, where the right to add a block rotates among the parties participants in a fixed order. Since all participants are known, a malicious actor would be discovered if it is used to turn if it used its turn to modify the chain in a harmful or illegitimate way. And other disputes can be resolved easily by participants validating previous blocks. Security of physical assets. Even when blockchain record is secure, there is still the danger that a contaminated or counterfeit product might be tagged and introduced into the supply chain, either in air or by a corrupt actor. Another danger is inaccurate inventory data resulting from mistakes in scanning, tagging, and data entry. Companies are addressing these risks in three, three ways. First, they are stringently conducting physical audits when products first enter the supply chain to ensure that shipments match blockchain records. Secondly, they are building a distributed applications called dApps that track products throughout the supply chain, check data integrity, and communicate with the blockchain to prevent errors and deception. If a counterfeit or error is detected, it can be traced to its source using the blockchain trail of transactions for that asset. Third, companies are making the blockchain more robust by using IoT devices and sensors to automatically scan products and add records to the blockchain without human intervention. This is making me really excited. One area where tokenization is sufficient to provide trust and security is the trading of assets like digital books and music. If the ownership of these assets is tied to a blockchain platform, counterfeits can be completely eliminated. For instance, universities commonly use digital reading packets for many courses, working in partnership with publishers and copyright owners. Significant efficiency gains could be generated by knitting this digital supply chain into a blockchain platform with smart contracts that can help participants access products, verify ownership, and handle payment conclusion and then we'll wrap this up and we'll go to questions we're right on time actually conclusion there is considerable room to improve supply chain in terms of end-to-end -end traceability speed of product delivery coordination and financing blockchain can be a powerful tool for addressing the deficiencies as the companies we have studied have proved it is now time for supply chain managers who are standing on the sidelines to assess the potential of blockchain for their businesses they need to join the efforts to develop new rules, experiment with different technologies, conduct pilots with various blockchain platforms, and build an ecosystem with other firms. Yes, this will be this will require a commitment of resources, but the investments promises to generate a handsome return. Uh, last but not least, I wanted to share if you guys do want to get started with cryptocurrency, um, I'm going to put a link in the description right now. in coinbase uh, use that link and get uh ten dollars in free bitcoin when you make your first purchase of a hundred dollars or more for you math nerds out there that's a hundred percent roi also on coinbase there's a lot of like little lessons like i found this one interesting called on the, the graph it's a protocol for indexing blockchain if you just like kind of sign up go through this little training it kind of teaches you about these different coins and gives you like a few few dollars in rewards in that coin so you know here it's telling you the decentralized protocols provide reliable and neutral access to data the graph is decentralized protocol for indexing and querying data from blockchains so i'll go ahead and uh, let you guys let you guys play with that so um so that's it for uh, today's lesson uh, i'll pull up a chat on screen um, do you guys have any questions do you guys have any ideas was this useful was this valuable um, your feedback is immensely helpful. So please let me know in the chat, uh, what you thought of today's lesson. And, um, if you're excited to get started using blockchain, playing around with cryptocurrency and working on supply chain 4.0, I'm going to go ahead and put a link on the screen. Now, if you're not already, 
please join the Industry 4.0 Community Discord server. We just added a new channel today for supply chain. We've had a channel on blockchain. There's some amazing, smart individuals in the Discord server. Um, and yeah, it's free to join. Link will be uh, on screen and down below. And um, Annabelle said, the round robin approach does not ensure decentralization, which will introduce a closed ecosystem. Yeah, I definitely think that there needs to be an open ecosystem, right? Um, closed ecosystem, obviously, we know that's going to be point to point and not scalable. But, um, you know, I just found that article really interesting. I'll, I'll put a link to the article in the chat now. Um, and I'll also put it in the description. Uh, thanks again for joining today, guys. Um, complicated degree with every pharma partner. You know, I think there's going to be pharmaceutical companies that resist change and have uh, paradigm paralysis. And there's going to be new companies that that spawn up, right? There's going to be a Tesla of pharmaceuticals, right? It might even be Tesla, right? Um, but I actually, I know I said it, I told John I wasn't going to talk about Tesla. So if you guys are sick of hearing about Tesla, uh, you, know, you can unsubscribe and go, go, go follow another channel. But, uh, we're going to continue to talk about Tesla until someone is beating them in the market. Omar said, Zach is a man. Thank you. Um, Cheryl said opportunity. Yeah, there's, that's why I said, uh, make sure to save this, like, like this video, watch it again, right? There's someone that's watching this. There's someone in our community that's going to use the information, you know, about this topic to create an app, to create a startup, and they're going to make a million dollars or more. So thank you, Liam. Thank you, Pascal. Food is going to overdrive pharma, less red tape. Agreed. But pharma, there's also more financial incentive too, right? Annabelle said, great discussion is a good thing to consider optimal ways to combine these two concepts, industry 4.0 and blockchain. Thank you. All right, guys, that's going to be it for today. Um, thank you again. We'll see you guys next week. And uh, uh, we'll make sure to subscribe and, and look forward to the video four ways manufacturers can monetize industry 4.0 themselves right last week we talked about four ways the individual you can make money with 4.0 uh, this week we're going to be talking about four ways the manufacturer can monetize 4.0 i think i might actually include this as one of them so stay tuned for that we'll see you guys next week bye